Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Before the end of this age, there is going to be plenty of times where it looks like believers have lost. And that was the case certainly with Jesus. In a few days from these moments that we just read of, when Jesus is cast out of the city, when he is crucified and then his dead body is buried in a rich man's tomb, it will look like Jesus Christ has lost. And it's going to look like in many circumstances and in many places that believers have lost when they suffer the persecutions that Jesus describes. Even when some of God's people are put to death, it will look like we have lost. But as I was praying just a moment ago, the world never even has so much as the upper hand. Never. How can the world ever have the upper hand when you think of who it is that is speaking these words and what he is saying? We must realize this about the glory of Jesus Christ, that we're not just reading something that he knows, but because he is who he is, the Son of God, in accord with the Father and the Holy Spirit, we, we are reading about what Jesus Christ has planned. It's not just what he knows. He doesn't just know the future. But the triune God has planned the future and everything in it. So how can the world ever have the upper hand? How could you ever have the upper hand on an enemy who by their very will determines whether you exist or whether you don't? 
You don't get into the ring with someone like that. We're not talking about between the world and our Lord a contest of equals. All he has to do to finish off those who oppose him is stop willing their existence. He doesn't have to go over to the outlet and pull the plug on the world. He just has to stop willing their existence. The world cannot have the upper hand on Christ. Though it may look like he is losing. He is never scrambling for a plan. He is never at a loss. He is never in retreat. There is no plan B with the Lord. All things are in his hands. He never even gets slowed down. That's who our God is. And we, here's the glorious thing, we are on his side. So we cannot lose. Jesus Christ has already indicated, we've spent a lot of time talking about it, that following him is going to cost us personally. But there is not an ounce of opposition that we will suffer that takes our Lord by surprise. And there is not an ounce of loss that we suffer that he will not more than repay. That's what comes with being on the side of Christ. So if he can't lose, how can we? If God is for us, if this God is for us, who can be against us? This morning, I want to encourage you not to give up. To persevere. There are a number of Christians who do not believe that perseverance is necessary for that final salvation. But it is. The one who turns their back on the Lord Jesus Christ was never saved to begin with. The one who goes out from us, as John says, was never of us. Those who persevere to the end are saved. As Jesus says, those, and he says it in Matthew and Mark, those who endure to the end are saved. The way he puts it here is by your endurance, you will gain your lives. We must keep on believing and we must keep on following and we must continue to confess to the world our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we will suffer for it, again, there is not a single loss that He will not repay in glory. Uh, you know, our society today picks on our young people a lot because uh, they're constantly, they say, uh, giving up. Um, I don't know, it might be like, they work in this job for a little while, then quit that one, go on to something else. They don't find that satisfactory. Maybe they're aimless and give up a lot. I, I think that every every generation is like that to an extent, except maybe those generations who get impressed into war. And then they have to grow up extra fast. But I want to encourage all our young people and right up to our elderly folk, don't give up. Don't give up. And one of the ways that we can be tempted to give up is slowly. People don't just turn on Jesus all at once. It happens slowly. <laughs> I mean, how else is Satan going to, to deceive us? It's subtly that he does these things. That we, the, the vision of Christ gets blurred and, and it happens over time. We get comfortable with sin. And drift. And I think that we see in scriptures that those who have experienced even great things of God 
were never truly His in the first place if they turn their back on Him. We must persevere. And we need to take this to heart. Do not give up. Be patient. A lot of the Christian life is just slogging away. You know, you, you might be in, in an environment perhaps where <laughs> if you've ever been to a Christian conference, everything just seems so glorious. You know, the, the singing is great. Maybe they even have some kind of fog machine or something like that or laser show or whatever. And it's just like, man, this is, this is great. It, Following Jesus is wonderful, but you know, conference life is not the Christian life. And I don't know if you've been in that environment or not before, but I've I've seen it a lot. And maybe uh, camp for young people is the same. They get all gung ho and excited, but that's not that's not the day to day. The Christian life is plowing, it's plodding, and a lot of the time it, it seems boring. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on Christ. We must persevere. Let's keep on going because I'm using up too much time. Or let's get started, I should say. We're in verses 1 to 4 to start. We have this, this poor widow woman. She has so much piety and so much to commend her, but she is not a hopeful sign for the city of Jerusalem. In verse 1, Jesus observes these rich people putting their gifts into the temple offering box. And in verse 2, He observes this poor widow who only puts in two small copper coins. She is an incredible contrast between the keepers of the temple, or I'm messing up my wording. There is an incredible contrast between the the keepers of the temple and her. Jesus has already condemned them in the previous chapter for how they are, are so power hungry and for their widow devouring ways. He has condemned them for, um, their service to God being nothing but a show for really serving themselves. And so this really comes to the forefront when he sees this poor widow woman putting in these two small copper coins which are worth next to nothing. I mean, in the currency of the day, there was no smaller coinage than what she deposits in the offering box. We, we've talked before about the denarius, uh, Quite a few times. The denarius was one day's wage for the common laborer. You know how long it would take the common laborer to to earn what she puts in the offering box? About ten minutes. And that's no exaggeration. So she puts in this little amount, which is next to nothing. And Jesus says the worth of her gift is more than all the rich have put in. Jesus praises her because what is worth so little costs her so much. That's the measure of the gift that pleases God. Does it cost you? Does it cost you in how you are serving Him? That's the gift that He praises. Now, it's sad to say, but even though God has this faithful remnant in the city of Jerusalem, the city is going to face its end, you know, when you put it in historic terms, relatively shortly. It's going to be a few decades. But Jerusalem's demise is certain. It's because those who are the keepers of the temple have rejected the one who is the fulfillment of the temple. 
Jesus is the true dwelling place of the glory of God. That's what the meaning of the temple is. He is the fulfillment of all that the temple signified. And they rejected Him. So Jerusalem, the holy city, had given itself over to evil and was going down under the holy judgment of God. We'll get to that in in just a moment. But before I move on from this this woman, I just want to... uh, I want to note how she, well, what you see the world despising, God exalts. And what the world exalts is what God judges. So the world dismisses this woman. But Jesus is impressed with her, really. And he honors her and he praises her. On the other hand, as we see in verse 5, the world you know, praises the temple, how it is adorned with noble stones and offerings. But what the world praises and and values above all, God judges. And we we have here a little bit of that radical reversal of things that we were talking about in our Sunday school this morning. It's the rich who are sent empty away and it's the hungry who are filled with good things. Jesus says in verse 6, As for these things that you see, they had been talking about the noble stones and the offerings that adorn the temple. He says again, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will be thrown down. This temple that had been built over several decades, in fact, even at this time, it wasn't yet completed. The temple would only be completed, I think, if I remember correctly, in AD 66, only four years before its destruction. So uh, the temple, though, I mean, it really was an amazing thing. Let me read from uh, commentator James Edwards for a moment. He writes, The blocks of stone used in construction were enormous. Josephus, he was a secular Jewish historian, Josephus reports that some were 40 cubits, approximately 60 feet in length. No block that size has been found in the existing foundation But stones north of Wilson's Arch, I'm assuming that Wilson would be an archaeologist who uncovered much of the old temple. He says, but stones north of Wilson's Arch measure 42 feet long, 11 feet high, uh, 14 feet deep, and weigh over a million pounds. The magnitude of the temple mount and the stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the ancient world. And again, Jesus says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down because Jerusalem had refused her king. So judgment was coming. The disciples asked Jesus in verse 7, if you'd look there again, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, who expects Jesus to answer exactly as they ask? By now, we should know better, right? Jesus often, I would say most of the time, does not answer our questions exactly as we ask them. But you can count on this that he will always answer our questions in the way that is best for us. God always supplies our needs. He is faithful to supply what we need. 
And one of the things that we need is to be needy. We need to be needy enough to the point where we must cling to Him and we must trust Him. So that's one of the needs He gives. He makes us needy. We need to trust Him more than we need to know the exact answers and details of His plans. We need to need Him more than we need answers. He begins in verse 8 and down through verse 11, and I'm not going to read these verses again, with warnings. He warns us, first of all, about false doctrines in the church and disasters in the world. Disasters between nations and in nature. And Jesus says the presence of these things, false doctrines in the church and disasters in the world, do not signify the immediate end. In fact, these things will be from the time that Jesus ascends back into glory until the end of the age when Christ returns. So the presence, even the abundance of these things, does not signify the end. But through these things, the one that Jesus calls the father of lies is going to do a lot of lying to the people of God. Through false teachers and also through disasters, through global conflicts and catastrophes, a lot of lies are going to be told. Through false teachers, what does Satan promise? No matter what the lie is, I think whether... You know, Jesus says there are two lies basically here. He says there's the Antichrist, Antichrists, plural, and the ahead of Christ, we could say if we want to alliterate it. Those who say, I am He. And those who say, the time is now, indicating His return. But whether they are Antichrist or ahead of Christ or what we would call, you know, the, the health and wealth, false teachers, Satan is always promising gain. Through the false teachers, Satan promises gain. And then through global conflicts and catastrophes, Satan is always threatening loss. So on one hand, again, he he promises all gain. On the other hand, he threatens all loss. And if we listen to either one of these lies on the opposite end of the spectrum, we're not listening to our Lord Jesus Christ. Through these lies, Satan not only wants to control your life and dictate your hopes, but he wants to destroy you. So we must not listen. We're going to concentrate on... So one way you could think of it is that Satan works pain against us and he works pleasure against us. And he is always telling lies through both of them. We're going to have pleasure in this world and we're going to have pain... Satan wants to deceive us through both of them. We're going to concentrate, as Jesus does, on the pain that the people of God are going to experience. Think about, I mean, we, we've read it. The, the persecution that Jesus describes his disciples are going to experience. We have lived for some time in this window that is an exception to the rule of history. That is relatively peaceably for quite some time. But it's again, it's the exception to the rule. Even now, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are experiencing all of the above that Jesus talks about. They are suffering brutal conflicts in their countries. 
terrible catastrophes and the cost of following Jesus in terms of persecution. So you realize and you take it to heart, do you not, that those who promise Christians prosperity in this age are enemies of the truth. And believe me when I say, there is a host of people in our own community who have swallowed those lies. When you hear them, and if you talk about Christianity and the church or religion in general with people in our community, you will hear these lies. When you hear these lies, do not give them any room to operate. Pull your sword, the sword of the Spirit, and counter it with the Word of God. And goodness, you can find the truth that counters that lie all over the Scriptures. It's ridiculous. It is nothing but a lie from the pit of hell. We need to battle it. Battle it hard. And it's not that we need to be jerks about it. We need to speak the truth in love. I say pull your sword not only to confront the lie and to you know, take a swing at it, but protect those who are vulnerable and protect those who are gullible. Because, and it's also sad to say, and I'm not speaking this way in a, uh, condescendingly, but there are a lot of churches in this community that are not preaching the Word of God. So there are, there are people who attend church every Sunday who are vulnerable and gullible to these lies. We need to protect. If we have the truth of God, we need to bear the truth of God. It's part of the armor that He has given us. Something about suffering. You know, Satan either says that there's not going to be any for us through false teachers, or he threatens us with nothing but in conflicts and catastrophes and such. Let's realize the truth about what Jesus says of suffering. It's not that we gain Jesus and good in Him despite our suffering. Okay, It's not that we gain Christ and good in Him despite our suffering. As though, you know, gain, blessing in Christ breaks in and just overwhelms suffering and pummels it out of existence or something like that. And it's not as though we have suffering and blessing in Jesus just happening to coexist. Like maybe they cohabit, they exist in the same house, in the same life. That's not the way that the Scripture talks about it either. Rather, this is what the Bible says. That suffering is the means to blessing. It is not despite suffering or even in suffering, but through suffering that we have the blessing of Christ. Suffering drives us to Christ. It must. It drives us to Jesus. It draws us closer to Him. And it prepares for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it brings us to Jesus today and it prepares us for the future, the glorious future ahead. But this is what Jesus says about persecution for His followers. Look back at verse 12. He says, before all of this conflict and catastrophe and all of that, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Then he says, 
This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is um, a very sobering passage of Scripture as Jesus tells us what kind of persecution there will be, who we will face, and so on. And, and in fact, in verse 16, it's going to get even more personal and difficult. But uh, what an encouraging passage this is, too, in verses 13 to 15. And we have to be cautious with it, biblically careful, but I think we can also be guilty of being overly cautious, too. Um, we, we can go in either ditch. And so let me, uh, let me give you some instruction here on interpreting this verse and applying it to our own lives. First of all, you're going to go in the ditch if you think from these verses that you don't need to be seriously and studiously in the Bible. What does Peter say? Be prepared to give a reason to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to give a defense. That, that means in advance. You don't just, you don't just prepare in the moment. We must be seriously in the Word of God. There's really no excuse, like I'm too busy, or I'm too tired, or what have you, or it's too hard to not be in the Word of God. There are plenty. We, in, in our generation, we are richer than we have ever been with helps for understanding the Scriptures. So we need to be seriously in the Word of God, helped by prayer, and the power of God's Holy Spirit. There is this tendency amongst the people of God to think that the Holy Spirit somehow prefers spontaneity to study. And that is silliness. It really is. So don't buy into that. But you know what happens if you're about to go into the ditch and you overcorrect? Well, you're going to end up in the ditch anyway, right? So let's be careful that we don't overcorrect and go to the opposite side of the spectrum. And I think that we would do that if we say that this promise and encouragement from Jesus is only for these first disciples and not for us today. I think there is great, were great help for us today. What Jesus is saying is that those who abide in Him, in whom the Word of Christ dwells richly, don't need a canned speech. You don't need a canned speech. Why? Because Jesus is promising that in the hour of suffering persecution, not only will the grace of God prove sufficient so that you don't deny your Lord, but the grace of God will also prove sufficient so that you give a powerful witness to the Lord. Not only you will not deny Him. But those who abide in Him, in whom the Word of Christ dwells richly, as we're exhorted to have it dwelling in us in the book of Colossians, will also give a powerful witness to Him. I believe that's Christ's promise here. It's not a canned speech that is going to win the, win the day. So, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And in the hour of need, 
the Spirit will draw it out powerfully. You understand? I, I hope that you agree, because I think this is what Jesus is, I'm quite convinced that's what He is promising, and I think it is absolutely reassuring. If the Word of Christ dwells in you richly, then in the moment of persecution, the Spirit will draw out that Word powerfully and you will bear witness to the Lord. It's not a matter of winning an argument. That's not what Jesus is promising. It's not a matter of winning an argument and it's not a matter of escaping persecution fully intact. That's not what Christ is promising either. In fact, we see this very promise fulfilled in the life of Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, as he became the first recorded martyr in the history of the church, I think that we could think of him as a deacon. He was one of the first seven deacons in the church, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and part of that appointment to, to take care of the widows of the church so that the apostles, the elders, could concentrate on the Word of God and prayer. Well, Stephen also had a preaching ministry that it was extremely powerful. And it says in the book of Acts, so this is, this is how Jesus' promises fulfill. Listen to this. His opponents rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That did not mean that all of a sudden these religious authorities who hated him suddenly loved him or suddenly believed to Jesus and were one to Christianity. They didn't. In fact, their hearts were hardened and they were more determined to stamp out this witness than ever. The Bible says they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. But I, I think that Christians are often kept silent in their witness of Jesus because they are afraid they don't have a counterpoint to the point that the skeptics are making. We don't have the answers. We're afraid of just... We might be afraid of looking bad ourselves. That's certainly part of it. But I also think we may be afraid of making the cause look bad. But listen, you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then in the hour that you speak for Him, God will use His Word. God will use His Word. The Gospel will accomplish the will of the Lord. Even when it seems like we are losing. Let's go on to verses 16 to 19. I think we should read these again. Jesus doesn't hide what will be the experience of His followers. He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Now, I don't think that we find necessarily the 11, that is the 11 faithful disciples, experiencing their family members handing them over to their adversaries. So I think from that we can know Jesus is not only speaking about the 11, but all throughout church history we have found this. And look what else he says. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. It's one thing, church family, for your country to turn on you, which some believers in America have already experienced. It's, an, it's another thing entirely when your own family turns on you. And as I spoke about our brothers and sisters around the world today, 
experiencing persecution, they've experienced this. I've seen it, uh, I've read a few accounts of this happening in the country of Pakistan in particular. Christian converts out of fundamentalist Muslim households being given over by their families to the mob or to the government, false accusations brought against them of mistreatment or blasphemy against the Quran or what have you, and suffering greatly, some even dying in the streets for their faith, being handed over by their very own loved ones. Jesus says, that his people will be hated by all. And this is, I think, this is really hard. Because it is the natural human instinct to want to be loved and to be accepted more than anything else. I think that's one of our greatest desires. To be loved and to be accepted. God put it in there. It got twisted and corrupted by sin. But, We want to be loved and we want to be accepted. And what we hate more than anything else is to be hated and to be rejected. And that's how the world, even loved ones, may turn on us. People will hate us for faithfully following Jesus. The Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ are going to suffer persecution. Some measure of persecution will be experienced even if it's just words, ridicule, backstabbing, gossip, uh, etc., being shunned, it will be experienced by those who faithfully follow Christ. There's a way out. It's called compromise. Taking the broad road. Turning away from Jesus and getting in with the world. There's a way to escape this. But that way ends in destruction. Look at the promise of Christ. He says, some of you will die for following me. They will kill some of you. But not a hair of your head will perish. Even if they take away everything from you, you will lose nothing. You will lose nothing. Not a hair of your head will perish. The Bible says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Jesus is promising the power of resurrection. It is the It is the end of all the people of God. We will be raised. Right now in glory, there are already the the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They've already been in that sense glorified in spirit and soul. Not yet in body. That's coming too. Jesus won't lose any of us. He won't lose, He also says, a thing of us. There's nothing that is taken away from us that He will not repay. If they hate us, He will give us all the acceptance that we lose in this world. If they shame us, He will honor us and He will exalt us. In Jesus and in the new creation, we have repayment 
infinitely above and beyond all that the world could ever take away. That's our God. This is why we should trust in Him. So as He not only promises this power for resurrection here, He says, not a hair of your head will perish. We have a power that the world does not have for now, for for here and now, in the suffering of this life. We have the power in the promise of God by the Spirit of God to not be afraid. Everyone is afraid. Everyone in the world is afraid. Like the authorities. Why do they hate Jesus so much? Because they're afraid of losing their power. They're afraid of losing face and losing their skin and everything else. They're afraid. People in the world are afraid that they're going to miss out on the pleasures of this world. So many people are, even in the church, afraid of either too much pain or not enough pleasure. You know, listening to the lies of Satan. People live in fear. But we have this power in the promises of God to live unafraid. And the Bible commands us over and over again. I mentioned to this, this to the guys on Wednesday night. Someone has said, and I don't know if it's exactly true, but it sounds close that the Bible commands us 365 times once for every day of the year not to be afraid. Do not fear. The Bible said, we even read one this morning. You know, Gabriel commanded Mary, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. We not only have the commandment in Scripture, but by the promises of God and by the Spirit who indwells us and puts those promises deep in our hearts, we have the power to live that out. Not only the commands, but God gives us the power to live unafraid. That might seem to you to be one of those things that is out of reach. And none of us can predict what you know the, the moment of suffering would be like, what it would be like if your loved ones themselves turned on you and gave you over to the worst but we have this promise from God that His grace will be sufficient so that when the time comes, we not only not deny our Lord, but we also give a powerful witness to His truth and to His glory as well. Jesus says, by your endurance you will gain your lives. Or to put it in the words of Matthew and Mark, as they recorded it, those who endure to the end will be saved. Church family, every single one of us, don't give up. Don't give in to the lies of Satan. Whether he is telling those lies about the pleasures of this world or the pain that comes in this life. Don't believe him. Keep your ears tuned to Christ and your eyes peeled for him. Fixed on him. Trust in him. Believe his word. In the good day and the bad, the easy one and the day that is full of pain, keep on going. Let us keep on going together, believing and encouraging each other in the word of truth. You must persevere. Those whose faith is truly been born from above, they will persevere to the end. We have the promise of God 
of resurrection and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Lord, you don't give us all the answers to all the questions we ask. You give us exactly what we need, enough that we must keep trusting you. But we know, Father, that in this life there will be pain. There will be be pain that seems to come um, not from anyone who hates us per se, but the pain of sickness and loss, of uncertainty, tragedy even. And there will also be the pain of going the hard way that few find, the narrow way that leads to life. There will be pain of persecution. Father, I pray that you would equip us and you would arm us to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, I pray that we would be armed fully with the whole armor of God. We would stand fast in the word of truth. I pray, Father, that we would always seek your help. I pray, Father, that you would give us illumination understanding as we look into your word to understand, make sense of your promises and take them to heart. Give us your help. Give to us your spirit. And I pray, Father, that the word of Christ would dwell so richly in us that in that hour of testing, the opportunity would not be squandered. But I pray that we would use it not only not denying Jesus, but confessing Him powerfully too. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Oh God, I pray that You would put to death the lie that comes in the promise of health and wealth for Your people. Lord, I pray that You would wake up those who are deceived. Help them to realize what the truth is. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to bear witness to the truth in our community. Help us to make disciples, serious, faithful disciples of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your grace and the promise that you will raise us in the end. All will be new and all will be right. We praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.